alert, alert, alert. Yes, this is very serious. It is Monday, April 3rd, and we are starting our live collective, our live summer 2023 collective tonight, and we could not be more excited. So if you are slacking and haven't signed up and want to join the most fun, best way to study, you need to join your girls over at Study Notes ABA. Sign up for the live collective and come and join us for the next 10 weeks. We'll take you on the wildest ride of your life and get you to pass your BCABA or BCBA exam so you can be a badass. Head over to www.studynotesaba.com and save your seat. We cannot wait to see you tonight. Love you. Mean it. Study Notes ABA. ABA and a little X-rated away. It's behavior, bitches. Hey guys, it's Liat and Casey, and we are here with episode 136. Holy shit, Casey, what do you have? All right, episode 136. Complex PTSD is a real bitch, but maybe our guest today can help you fix it. Perfect. <laughs> Love it. <laughs> All right. So that just tells us we're going to be talking about CPTSD. And no, we are not saying PTSD wrong. This is something different. All right. Before we get started with today's podcast, it's time to give ourselves some reinforcement or you guys give it to us and we read it. Casey, what review do we have today? All right. This one's coming in from Shell921. Hi, ladies. You guys absolutely are the best. I've been listening to your podcast now for about three months. I find that your podcast helped me figure out ABA terminologies and practice into real life examples. For someone who is going for their BCBA, you guys make it sound less scary and more realistic. The content is definitely more relatable. I really enjoyed listening to the last podcast, hashtag trigger warning. It definitely made me think of my own triggers and be more mindful of them. Casey, thank you for being so open about your past. Just know you're not alone. We share a very similar past. Thank you for making me feel not alone and reminding me that there are other people out there. Thank you girls again. Can't wait to pass and join the BCBA community with two amazing BCBAs like yourselves. Love ya. Mean it. BRB, I'll be crying over here. Yeah, that is the sweetest. Oh, so sweet. Thank you, Shell. And today's episode, I hope, will also make everyone realize that really no one's alone in this world of life. Life of world of craziness. So thank you so much for that. The robot's here to give you the behavioral principles today. The behavior, let me... Hold on. Let me call him over. Behavior robot, come here. The behavioral principles today are matching law, behavioral contrast, variable schedules that go with intermittent reinforcement, tacting, and I'm sure there'll be more. All right, let's get in because I am so excited for today's guest. I am excited to talk about this topic because Casey and I, like, I remember like being like, Oh my God, this is really interesting. This thing called complex PTSD. And I'm like, Casey, like, because we just talk about everything. And I was like, we have to find someone who can do a podcast on this. And we found today's guest, which Casey is going to introduce right now. Yes. I mean, and I will say, Liat bought me a complex PTSD workbook. I've re- yeah. tried to read books on it that, you know, I just haven't loved and me to actually sit down and read a book in one sitting is not normal. But our guest today, her book, it's called Believing Me. And I cannot tell you how life-changing it is. I mean, 
talk about like reading and then looking into a mirror um, of everything and putting words to it and language and identifying it. So I'm going to tell you a little bit about her and then we'll bring her on. But her name is Dr. Ingrid Clayton. Um, she has a master's in transpersonal psychology um, and a PhD in clinical psychology. Um, she has a holistic approach to psychotherapy, incorporating trauma-informed modalities like somatic experiencing, EMDR, and other experimental ways of working with the nervous system. She is the author of the memoir, Believing Me, which is healing from narcissistic abuse and complex trauma. She uncovers her personal experience of childhood trauma from a psychologist's perspective. And it's really is a memoir. It is not a self-help. It is not um, going to be boring or dry. You're entrenched in her childhood from page one. Um, so Ingrid, I am just over the moon. Welcome to the show. Oh, that <laughs> intro can make me cry. Thank <laughs> you so much for having me. I'm so happy to be here with both of you. It's a Let's dream. all cry today. <laughs> I brought my tissues. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, I will say, and I want you to tell the audience, because um, when I, I'd never really heard of complex PTSD until recently, and it is different than PTSD. And it really unravels a lot of that developmental trauma. And can you talk a little bit about the difference of the two? Yes. Yeah, so um, I think when most folks think of PTSD, they think of the movie presentation of like a wartime veteran who there's fireworks that go off and they're flashed back to, you know, a scene uh, in war. And that is PTSD, right? That is a flashback. Um, and what we're talking about with complex trauma, it is synonymous with developmental trauma, which you just mentioned. So complex trauma is developmental trauma, relational trauma, childhood trauma. It's an ongoing experience of traumatic events over time. So with PTSD, you really only need one significant traumatic event to qualify for that particular diagnosis. And then with all of the symptoms from PTSD, um, those are all included for complex PTSD. And then we have a few more uh, that are on top of that. So it's, it's, it's really th the biggest difference, though, is uh, pervasive traumatic events over time. And being exposed to that over and over, where it's not just this one identifiable moment. It's That's like, right. Oh, you know, whether it's abandonment as a child or, you know, I always think of my childhood. I'm like, well, I wasn't abused. Like, I wasn't hit. I wasn't, but like abandonment or like lack of parental guidance, I guess I would say, yes. over and over and over again. It's like that lack of someone showing up for you. I think that's the other nuance that I'm so grateful that people are understanding and me included. So, you know, I am a clinical psychologist. I ended up being a trauma therapist. I specialized in trauma and I was like, but I don't have real trauma. You know, it was like, I don't have that. There's, there's this tendency, particularly with childhood trauma, because um, as kids, you know, you don't really have a choice. You're born into the situation that you're born into. And we need our caregivers, no matter how deficient they are. And so there's this tendency to minimize the truth of what's happening and or to make it our fault. 
right? It's a survival mechanism. I'm, I'm grateful for it. It allows us to get through what we were born into. But fast forward into our adult lives and we're still kind of sitting here holding the bag like it wasn't that big of a deal. I'm just a little messed up. Yes, I'm riddled with anxiety and depression and toxic <laughs> shame, but that has nothing to do with this traumatic past, right? We, we don't see the through line. So I've said before, if you minimize what happened, you actually minimize your ability to give yourself the proper tools and treatment to take care of yourself. And so I'm so grateful that now we're really owning and naming that emotional abuse is abuse. <laughs> it's yeah. neglect counts, abandonment counts that, you know, um, I often as a kid, I felt I almost wish I had bruises because mm. my um the bulk of what I experienced really was gaslighting, emotional abuse. It was narcissistic abuse, uh, alcoholic family system, really chaotic, um, all the uncertainty. What's their mood going to be like when they get home? We'd all run to our rooms, you know, um, that that was hard to explain to people outside of the house. It's like, well, I don't feel I chronically don't feel safe. And it's, mm -hmm. you know. We know now from a nervous system perspective that my, my body was literally being wired in an environment where I was walking on eggshells. Of course, that has mm -hmm. a longstanding impact. But I felt like, gosh, I wish I had bruises because that would sort of qualify my experience as significant or bad mm -hmm. enough or whatever it was. Um, and so, you know, the, the other thing I'll say about CPTSD and the reason that a lot of us are just hearing about it now is because we still don't even have a proper diagnosis in the United States. So in our DSM, the sort of diagnostic Bible in the United States, a lot of clinicians were fighting in this last round of edits to get something like CPTSD in there, and they decided not to do it. And so CPTSD is actually in the World Health Organization, so the international sort of diagnostic Bible, they have CPTSD in there. And thank goodness enough clinicians are sort of like seeing this and hearing about it. This, it is a thing, it is a real thing, like uh, what often happens in the mental health field is we are in our infancy. <laughs> we are just, you know, the research is, is way behind. Uh, most of the research on PTSD is done on men, is done on vets and um you know we we need to get up to speed and i think conversations like this are a big part of that so um yeah i'm glad that that you wanted to to do the deeper dive and i want to talk about your book because if anyone out there you know might identify as you know having this ongoing trauma growing up and not thinking and you're minimizing it or you're thinking, well, it, you, you know, it wasn't that I wasn't raped. I wasn't beaten. I wasn't this. Right. Mm. But I yeah. have a chronic pattern of dysfunctional relationships and I can't get my life off the ground or whatever those symptoms, present day symptoms are. Um, we can tend to identify those better sometimes than we can own what happened to us. Um, but sorry, I interrupted you were maybe. No, I was, me. I just wanted to read this. I have like everything on my book is highlighted. It's in a PDF ah. version. I'm, I'm going to get the real one, but I, this one, I really want to start here. And what you say is that you couldn't draw a line from my past to my current expression of symptoms. So I call them by another name. 
I mostly thought I had anxiety, which can mean a lot of different things. But for me, it meant living in a perpetual state of walking on eggshells, constantly scanning for threats, which I now know is hypervigilancy, which was my what I've learned, particularly in relationships. I was constantly afraid of getting in trouble or someone being mad at me, habitually guarding against those unfounded fears by overcompensating. I feel like you're talking to me. No matter my age or how long it had been since I lived at home, if I experienced a small conflict, my body felt like a lockdown was coming. Yeah. That hits on every nail on everything of how I feel. Um, and I was just like, wow, like it is that like you say in the book too, when you were younger, because your parents, you know, drugs, alcohol in the house, you became like a little detective. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Like I was too. And they always called me nosy. My parents were like, stop being so nosy. And I'm like, I was just trying to figure out like, what are you smoking? What are you smoking out of that pipe? Like, you know what I mean? Like, why are the spoons black? Like, I'm so confused. Uh, uh. Um, but I always just dubbed nosy. And like my whole family started saying it. I'm like, I don't think I'm nosy. I think I'm just like witnessing things that like <laughs> no child should witness. So it's like, wow, what is this? You're probably always looking for safety mm -hmm. of like, right. wait, like always like trying to like, which probably makes you an amazing behavior analyst because you <laughs> could like look at what antecedents yeah. are before behavior actually happens, but. That's right, that's right. I mean, you are I like that, even as a friend level, I could like, if I'm like in a text with like my dad or something, Casey, like, I'll be like, oh my God, my dad asked about, I don't know, the starfish or something. And like the next thing, like she's taken my phone already and like continue to scroll through <laughs> the entire conversation that we might've had. And I'm like, Case, it's my dad. Like he's literally <laughs> talking about the fish. And she's like, sorry, I just need to know what's going on. <laughs> that's control. That's control because when we feel out of control, which we were, mm -hmm. we try to control and understanding and knowing and figuring out what's going to happen before it happens is a part of that, which creates that hypervigilance. And absolutely, I can tell you a lot of therapists, um, we, you know, we call it empathic or we call it intuition or we call it a lot of these things, which it is and it's true. But for me, it's also that hypervigilance that lends itself to going, I can read someone's nervous system across the room mm -hmm. <laughs> better than they can. And um, it, it's because we learned that really early that we had to read someone's nerve. What's the mood? What do I need to do to kind of, you know, keep myself safe in this situation? Also that like, not only keep yourself safe, but like, I've been reading a lot, your newest article on psychology today about that, like, um, fourth of the, you know, fight, flight, I've always known that I'm always in one of them or freeze. Yeah. Can you explain those? Can you explain yeah. those a little more? Because Casey has literally, if, if there's any of your content, Casey has consumed it. <laughs> yes, and I'm so excited for this. I know. But can you talk about like, what are these four things that you're talking about, Case? And Ingrid, can you talk about these four so, so what you're referencing are the trauma responses, right? So uh, often we hear fight, flight, and freeze. And we can see this if we look at the animal kingdom, right? That the fight response is sort of that literal, like, if I feel threatened, I'm going to attack. I'm going to get bigger. Um, the flight response is, I'm out of here. And freeze is like playing dead, you know? Um, but with complex trauma, so Pete Walker has written an amazing book from surviving to thriving, and he has a lot of great articles and, and other resources. He really specializes in complex trauma, and he coined this 
fourth term of a trauma response called fawning. And when I read about fawning, I was like, this explains everything because what my body did and how I instinctively responded to threat was, how do I keep you in a good mood? What do you need me to be now? Right? So fawning is essentially the heartbeat of codependency where I essentially abandon myself and my needs to take care of you in the hope that you're going to kind of circle back around and keep me safe. And so, yeah, I just, I think last week, um, there's a new post on psychology today called what is the fawning trauma response? And I go more in depth about it. But the thing with all of the trauma responses is that they can become habitual. And this is really common with complex trauma. Again, because you're in a repeated pattern of trauma, your body's in a repeated pattern of trauma response. So over time, we don't know that it's a trauma response. We just think that it's our personality. I just, I'm a, I love being of service. I'm very altruistic. These things that, of course, there's nothing wrong with them on the face of it, right? I, I, of course, I'm not going to suggest that people stop being of service or caring about others, but we really have to look at when it's when it involves the choice. Am I making this choice consciously or do I feel like my life depends upon it? And am I showing up for you in a way that is actually crippling to me? And, and obviously this becomes really problematic. The same is true. So my two biggies are fawning and flight. So fl the flight response isn't just psh, 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 running out of there. It can also appear like staying in perpetual motion right? Mm. And it's the obsessive compulsive tendencies. It's the perfectionism. It's the reason I got three degrees and all these extra trainings. And because I'm going to figure it out, I'm going to get ahead of this thing. And so it can be really tricky for me just to like, <sighs> exhale and be still, right? It's the detective in us that was like, I'm going to figure with uh, me climbing on top of my refrigerator always to go in those two little cupboards that are like tucked way behind the fridge. As a kid, I knew that there was gonna, always going to be stuff up there. What's it going to be now? Um, that Those are also aspects of a chronic flight response. Just one thing what you said, just want to add in just for any students listening be behaviorally, just what you just said, we all speak the same language, just in different terms. Yeah, yeah. Right. So- you're kind of saying like, okay, so let's say, I mean, I could talk, Casey is like the most, I mean, I always say like, I mean, she runs our customer service and literally there is no one better for it because <laughs> she loves to serve people. Like, I mean, well now I'm like, does she love to serve people? <laughs> does she love like when she comes to my house, she's taking care of me. She's taking care of Kobe. Yeah. She's making sure I'm okay. She's making sure I'm drinking water. And like, mm -hmm. I actually, like me personally, I love people like that around me because I'm such a space cadet that like anyone who offers me like any sort of help in any way, I like love, mm -hmm. but, um, but it's actually really interesting talking about it in perspective of like behaviorally of like, well, what's the function of it? It's like, it could be okay to assert, like, are you doing this because you genuinely like, you know, you like, I don't know. I'm thinking I love to buy people gifts. Am I doing it because I want that person? Like, what is the function of doing it? Is it because, um, I like seeing people happy. Is it because I want to see like, oh, maybe they'll, like like me more and it's kind of yeah. like 
I guess, looking at any of the behaviors that you do engage in and like the, the function behind it. It's just, it's, it's interesting because you said you look at it as a personality. I just assume, I'm like, Casey is like the caretaker of all time. Yeah. I love that question. And I don't necessarily use that language, but I'm going to now like what, because that invites consciousness underneath the thing and you go, okay, what is the function of that? Why am I actually doing that? And if I can go into the body, which from a trauma perspective is where all of the answers lie, because I might think that I'm doing it for a certain reason, but if I check in with my body, do I go, why do I have all these butterflies in my stomach? Why does my chest feel so tight? Why do I feel afraid? What do I think will happen if I don't do the thing? That is a power packed question, right? Because you might go, oh no, I'm doing it because it feels good and I love to be of service and I'm just a real kind of da -da -da. Okay, so what would happen if you didn't do that thing? And my body gets flooded with fear and it's like, <laughs> you know, some other shoe's gonna drop and I don't know what it's gonna be, but it's gonna be really bad. It's gonna be, that's what I'm guarding against. I was just, I always think of this, especially this morning, I like made, I got up and made my husband breakfast and, you know, I like to be of service and, you know, like I want to get his day started right. And like, you know, and we have breakfast together or whatever, but then like, I really thought about it after. And I was like, I, I think I did it because the fear of he's not going to eat if I don't do it. Like, he's not going to be able to take his medicine if I don't do it. Like that is such like a momming versus like a partner. Like, it's more like, oh, my fear of the why I did it was because if I didn't do it, he wouldn't eat or, you know, take his Zoloft or whatever it is. So right. It's like, right. It's so interesting to think back on why we do things and what is the purpose? And is it coming from fear or is it coming from actually wanting to just do it? Right. Right. And I think it's, you know, we don't always come up with a concrete answer, but I think generally speaking, to kind of bring this curiosity. Um, because, you know, trauma responses aren't conscious and that's by design. And when we look at it from trauma and you look at that animal that's like out in the wild, they don't want to pause and go, hmm, should I run right now? I don't, am I hungry? Do I need a snack? Right? Like what literally happens physiologically all unnecessary funct functions shut down. Your digestion, the, the prefrontal cortex, rational mind, offline. You are all trauma response. And it's so that if you need to run, you can run. If you need to fight, you can fight. And so we don't have all of our faculties when we're responding in this way. And, and so it's this over time, this ability to be curious and practice, what does actual safety feel like in the nervous system? How do I start to practice that, right? Because if the body doesn't feel safe, it's never gonna happen. And I kind of love that, that I can have all kinds of opinions about what I think I should do and why I should do it. If the body doesn't feel safe, it's like, uh, thanks for your opinion, but I'm gonna do what I need to do to take care of myself. So cultivating a sense of safety, which is why a lot of trauma therapies involve nervous system regulation, bringing in different types of resourcing uh, to figure out like, 
what does my body need to feel safe now? What does my body need to be oriented to the present moment? Because trauma, unprocessed trauma knows no time. It just feels like it's happening now. It's happening now. I got to keep doing what I'm doing in whatever ways that I'm doing it in order to stay safe. And so to really come into present tense and time, you know, you mentioned that one of my, one of my triggers and, and one of my flashbacks is I'm going to get in trouble. And this literally happened more intensely than I have felt it in a long time. It's going to make me emotional to think about it. Just last week, I'm at Disneyland of all places happiest place on earth, right? With my son and his friends and all these families are there and I love these people. And we're just kind of sitting back watching all the kids try to pull the sword out of the stone, you know? And it's adorable and it's like so idyllic. It's like everything that you want, like wrapped up in this moment. And sometimes what happens with trauma, it's not that you're just triggered because there's some sort of a fragment or reminder of the trauma. Sometimes what happens, like it did for me, is I felt so relaxed. I was having so much joy that it triggered my system to go, it's going to flip. It, nothing is this safe and this comfortable. And I was flooded with this terror in my body of this is all going to change. It's going to change in a heartbeat like it did when I was a kid. Like a lockdown is coming, like some big major threat is coming. And I'm standing in Disneyland and I had to just recognize it. And, and for me, this motion of hand on my heart is a physical practice of self-compassion. I try to do skin to skin like I'm doing now. It can help to release oxytocin the feel-good bonding hormone. That's why we put babies in the crook of our neck and the way that we hug, the way that we do, we can release it by ourselves for ourselves. And then I said to myself, I'll do it out loud if I can, but I was in all of this company, so I just said it to myself. This is an emotional flashback. Oh, just yeah. saying right now, it takes me back to that mm -hmm. moment. And I am safe. Yeah. I am safe. I am 48 years old. <laughs> I'm not going to get in trouble. You know what I mean? Like, here I am. I'm a mom. I'm at this party. I'm like, da, da, da. But I, my body feels like it's happening now. It's happening now. And then I can use the senses because the senses are also the language of the nervous system. And I can orient to what I see and consciously even name it in my mind, like carousel, person, the color pink. And by naming it and saying it, it's letting my body know because when you're really uh, in danger, yeah. you're not naming this. You, you, you can't even really see. You get this real tunnel vision. So to widen the vision helps my body go, oh, we really are safe. It's not happening right now. You know, so learning these tools that we can practice when we're dysregulated, but we can just practice all the time so that when it does get really intense like that, we can sort of manage that dysregulation and and it was quick it was probably all over within one minute's time and no one even knew about it but me but boy my body was like this is not get out of here this is not safe what's up you badass bcbas if you are looking for ceus well look no further because your girls got you 
We have some awesome CEUs coming up. On Saturday, April 15th, we are going to have two live CEUs. Our first one is with our girl, Rosie. She's going to be talking about caregiver coaching and how to cultivate consistent, effective caregiver coaching, which is super hard. That's two CEUs, and that is Saturday, April 15th at 11 a.m. Central Standard Time. Then our boy, Dr. Shane Spiker, is teaching a live CEU Saturday, April 15th at 1.15 p.m. Central Standard Time, discussing the nuances and variables related to the development of ethical practices versus preferences in behavior analytic work. That is a 1.5 ethics CEU, which we know you all need. So head over to www.studynotesaba.com, click on CEUs, and we cannot wait to see you. Love you, mean it. First of all, my heart when I hear about these different things. Also, because of my also my love for Casey. Mm. And so like when you're telling these different things, I could like almost just by knowing her so well, like feel it totally. Like like these like she's always like, Leah, you're so good at reading me. I'm like, no, dude, you literally like <laughs> wear it on your sleeve. Like it's not that hard. I'm like, I'm such <laughs> but, a good actress. Um <laughs> But anyone who is possibly studying what we're uh, in behavior, we talk about the term uh, it's called tacting, and mm-hmm. it, you know we teach it to like a lot of kids. It's imp- like it's just like what happens naturally in development, and it's tacting, like labeling things in your environment, like water bottle, microphone, computer, this, that, and and it sounds a little bit like you know our field of behavior analysis is getting into act um, therapy, and and it's kind of about like. Um, like at least like the the book, The Happiness Trap that, you know, Case, and it's like telling you to like, to label these things as like, or to like a thought that you're having in your head, like change the font for it, sing it to yourself. So it's like, you could identify that like, this is not, maybe you could help me say it better, Case, but yeah. just kind of. Say you're kind of like diffusing your thoughts. Like I yeah. think, you know, all day long, if you think of how much private verbal behavior that goes on in your yeah. head, that can be so self-destructive and not, you know, not productive at all. Um, Unfusing from those, like that's just, just let it pass by. Let it be like a little bird that just floats in and you can float right out of here. Yeah. They're like changing the fun (laughs) font. Like if, if your brain's taking something, imagine taking that font, putting it in comic sans in a color. It's like, okay, so now it's this thing that could just go like, like it's something I I haven't read it in a while, but what you're saying Mm-hmm. It's good tools and techniques to, and it's hard when you're in that moment to even be able to get to that yes. level. Like, because it can escalate. Practicing it when you're not dysregulated can be so helpful. And so even that tool of orienting, that's a, that's a Peter Levine somatic experiencing resourcing tool of using the senses in that way. And I encourage people, this, you don't need to have trauma for this to be useful. This is just like you have a body, so this is useful. Uh, if you're stressed out, if you're upset, that when you're not feeling those things, look around and notice what you see. And for me, I will orient uh, specifically to nature because nature gives me a sense of connection to something outside of myself. It tends to be very calming for me. Um, But some people go, oh, I hate looking around. Okay, close your eyes and notice what you hear. Orient to the ambient sound in the room. 
For some people, it's touch, taste, smell. It doesn't matter. Practice them all. And just the language of trauma therapy, no matter what kind of therapy it is, is often what are you experiencing now? What are you noticing now? Not what do you think about it? <laughs> not, not going back up to the head. It's body-based. And what do you notice? And you know what I notice about 99.9% .9 of the time when I orient visually? <clears throat> is I take a spontaneous deep breath. It just happens. I'm not trying to breathe. <gasps> okay, I'm trying to breathe now. It's by connecting with my environment and present time and place, widening my vision that my body just spontaneously goes, <sighs> which lets me know that I'm becoming more regulated. Um, so, yeah, everyone, I encourage them just to practice that. Orient with the senses and notice what you notice. How does it make you feel? So I know we kind of went on to like what CPTSD and these responses are, but can you talk to us a little bit about like the, you know, writing a book like this is scary because it's family. I feel the same way when I do the podcast. I'm like, hope my mom's not listening. <laughs> but, you know, how, what really was the, you know, what changed? How did it help you? Oh my gosh. Um, so I, I wrote another book like 11, maybe even 12 years ago. Now it was based on my dissertation. It was a very sort of straight ahead, like nonfiction book. It was about spiritual bypass. And then I was like, okay, I'm done. There's no other book on the horizon. I really, all, all this time, it was like, I don't think I'm ever going to write another book again. Uh, I never, ever had a conscious thought where I was like, I think I'm going to write a memoir. <laughs> And I think it's going to be about childhood trauma because <laughs> that sounds like a great idea. This did not happen. Um, I'm still completely shocked that this has been my path at all. Um, but what happened is uh, my stepdad died. I think that's that's the first very important piece because he <laughs> all roads lead back to my stepdad. Um how many hours of therapy have I done about my relationship to my stepdad? Like, I cannot count. Uh, but he died. And in that exact moment, I literally felt safer. Talk about safety in the body. I felt safer on this earth than maybe I had ever felt. And it was instant. And I literally laid down on the floor and I just put my hand on my heart. And I, it was like I just felt the earth almost just holding me and I could feel it holding me. It was profound. And so that was one thing. I really think that this wouldn't have been possible if he was still alive. And, and that's important for me to even name for me because oftentimes I can go, why didn't I figure all of this out sooner? Like why, you know, I'd been working so hard and in therapy and getting all these degrees, trying so earnestly to kind of like solve a problem. And I don't think it was possible for me to see a deeper truth or comprehend things in this way um, until he was gone. And so that happened. And then maybe six, nine months later, uh, the Me Too movement was really up and people are sharing their stories, sharing their stories of, <coughs> of abuse in different ways and sexual abuse. And I heard that there, there was someone who had recorded Harvey Weinstein without him knowing it. And I'm like driving, listening to NPR. And I just pulled over and I was like, I have to listen to this 
tape. And I found it and I pulled back into traffic and I'm suddenly a very little kid driving a very big car because I'm in one of the most intense flashbacks I've ever had because I'm listening to Harvey's voice and I'm like, that, that's my stepdad. That's my stepdad. The way he was berating her for, you know, don't make a fool of me. And it, it's the classic narcissistic thing, which is deny, attack, reverse victim and offender. It's that D-A-R-V-O. He just did the like most <laughs> perfect example of it in this one very short recording, like two minutes or something. And I got in that moment, um, wait, that's what I experienced. It wasn't just alcoholism. I always knew it was related to alcoholism and addiction, but I thought it was something else. And I couldn't put the pieces together until I heard his voice. And I said, this is narcissism. This was narcissistic abuse. And I'm continuing to drive and suddenly these lines of what felt like a poem, they were just dropping into my consciousness. It was like, he did this, he did this, he all of these things, they just started coming. And it felt so important. I'd never done this before. I grabbed my phone because I knew that they were almost going to leave as quickly as they came. <clears throat> and so I grabbed my phone and I just started dictating to myself this, this thing. This thing became the scaffolding of this larger story that it was like my body had to tell. Because part of the thing that sort of wrecked me when he died is that he went to the grave with his story intact. The one that said, I was the bad guy. I was the selfish liar. I made it all up. I was ridiculous. And he convinced other people, including my mom, of this narrative. And there was just this part of me, it wasn't conscious, but it was like, I will not let that story define me for one more day. And then it was, it wasn't just months, it was years of I'm in the shower and essays started coming as though they were memories from my life that had been locked, frozen in time. I could tell you the time of day, the dialogue was as though it had happened 30 seconds ago. It was so fresh. What I felt in my body, what I was thinking at the time, it was like, and I had to just write it all down. Middle of the night, almost every single night, I'd be woken up two in the morning, three in the morning. And I didn't know what this was, okay? I'm like, what is this? And I'm reading these things to my husband and I'm like, this is, I feel like I'm going crazy, what is this? But I had to keep writing, I had to keep writing. And it was years later that I had not only written the childhood stuff, but the other things were coming were like experiences of dating, experiences of bosses and professors and all these like older men in my life that ended up being really inappropriate and crossing bound. I'm like, why am I writing about all these different things? And I'm like, am I writing about being a flawed therapist? Like, <laughs> I don't know. And finally, I'd written enough that I could look back at my own really sort of life experiences. And I could see for the first time, this is trauma. This is complex trauma. I have CPTSD and I didn't know it. And it originates from narcissistic abuse. 
And listen, I have sat on so many therapist couches. No one ever gave me this language. And so it sort of felt like, really? Like, uh, am, you know, can, can I say that? Is it true? And it was like, I couldn't deny it any longer because it was just so obvious in this writing. And when that dropped into my consciousness, I thought, if I'm a trauma therapist who works with trauma all day, every day, and I didn't know that I'm living with unresolved complex trauma because that's what trauma does, right? How many other people are walking around not knowing? And so the fact that the story had already came uh, and that it was the thing that opened it up for me, <clears throat> I just felt so called to share it and not from a like, self-help or, you know, clinical perspective. But I was like, because none of that clinical language ever helped me. I had it all, but I couldn't see how it related to me. But when I saw my story for what I felt and what I experienced it and how I carried it and the way that it like corrupted my sense of myself and then my all of my relationships and all of these things, it, it was just so obvious. And so that's the thing now that I'm hearing from so many people is that our particulars may be different, but you are telling my story. And same thing, I can read it because how many, look at right here, I have trauma, very amazing yeah. trauma books on every surface. How many of them have I read cover to cover? Not a lot because it's very triggering. It's very triggering for my nervous system, but I can hear someone's story. And then I see myself reflected in that. Suddenly I go, oh, it does apply to me. It does make sense to me. Um, so at the very end of the book, because I am a psychologist, I had to include a clinical glossary to say like, this is what trauma bonding is. And you kind of see an example of that in my story. And this is what trauma reenactment is. And you see that all throughout my story. But it's it, you don't have to read it if you don't want. It's there as a springboard if you want more information. Can you tell us just what trauma bonding is? Like I've read different. I think a lot of people historically have referred to trauma bonding as like two people that have trauma and they're sort of like connected in this way as a result. And that is not what we're talking about with trauma bonding in this sense. Trauma bonding is a hormonal attachment that is created when there's a repeated cycle of abuse or neglect uh, based on intermittent reinforcement, which I think is a part of your- That's, that's our term, ding, ding, ding. Yep, yep. <laughs> so it's that intermittent reinforcement of someone's gonna kind of show up and they might love bomb you. They might like, oh, you're so amazing. And then they just go cold. Mm -hmm. And your body's just like, no, 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 I want that other part where, where like you saw me and I was your everything. I want to get back to that. Right. And and so when there's is that where fawning could happen? Yes. Yes. My piece of the trauma bond uh, was my trauma response as a fawner. Yes. So fawning for me was the heartbeat of my own repeated experience of trauma bonding. And here's the thing about that fawning that feels important related to that. My body figured out a way to feel safe being exploited and unsafe and in chaos. So guess what I needed to feel safe over and over in the rest of my life? My body thought I needed 
to be exploited, to be unsafe. And so it's the heartbeat of trauma reenactment. It's sort of like all of my skills prepared me for these types of relationships. And I heard this somewhere along the way and I wrote it in the book and it's this. Red flags don't look like red flags when they feel like home. Mm -hmm. They weren't red flags to me. They weren't red flags to me. It was like, I got this. I know how to navigate that. You're unavailable. You're emotionally abusive. You're cheating, whatever it is. You're totally inappropriate. You're married. Cool, cool. I got this. I got this. And it gave me not only a sense of safety, but almost like it gave me this false sense of control and power. I felt special. And this is the thing that I don't think gets talked about enough in trauma bonding. When you feel like this person that is like a part of you knows is not safe to whatever degree. And yet you're the person that might potentially like release them from that or turn the tides in some way because they're endowing you with that. That's a part of the trauma bond is they see you know, you're the one who's so special and you're the one who's like going to fix it or make it all better. It feels true in your body and it feels honestly kind of extraordinary. And so if you can pair that really deeply unhealthy attachment, but it comes with that piece of like intoxication to healthy attachment, to just stable, normal, healthy attachment. Guess what healthy attachment feels like? Completely boring. I was about to say boring. Who would want that? When I met my now husband, thank the powers that be, uh, I had done enough work. But when I met him, I was like, he's amazing. But I, I think we're just meant to be friends because my body had no idea how to process what our healthy chemistry was. So I equated that like the the seeds of trauma bonding, the seeds of like, Well, you're never getting that high, right? Because from going so low, like when you're in an unhealthy relationship, you go low. So like the great is great. Yes. That's the key of trauma bonding is that the highs are amazing, but they're amazing in part because the lows are so low. So it's the contrast. And what happens over time is that the highs don't even get that good anymore, but they're still in contrast to this low. So when you even just get like crumbs It feels like, oh, it's so, thank goodness you've relieved me from like the pain of the silent treatment and, you know, utter abuse and devastation. So when that is gone and you're just like relating to someone and having an enjoyable conversation and wow, we have a lot in common, it's sort of like it doesn't light up my body in the same way that I always thought was a necessary ingredient. I was like, I can't make myself be attracted to someone you know, and it's true, but I didn't ever know because I didn't know I had trauma. So it didn't allow me to look at it from a trauma perspective that this wasn't healthy chemistry at all. This is what my body learned how to do in a really unsafe and chaotic environment. And now my job is to cultivate a new sense of safety, a relationship to myself, one that is based on healthy boundaries and reclaiming a voice and all of these things so that I can be in healthy relationships. 
you know, it's, uh, it's, it's so profoundly different. And I just didn't know. And so then I'm like, what's wrong with me? Why do I, why do I keep ending up in these just like brutal relationships? It's so painful when I was trying to do so much work and the work just never touched into where all of this resided, which was my nervous system. I never forgot my story. That's important, right? The way it dropped in in the writing was different. It literally sounds like godly. Like, uh, you know, people are like, no, like you don't get it. Like a voice spoke to me. It, like that's what it, it, it – and like it feels seems like a pimple that like had to be expressed. It, yes. <laughs> yes. I've never heard it be called expressed. Do you know the only time <laughs> – no, the only time that I finally understood why we say, oh, express yourself was recently when someone was like, dude, I had this like cyst and it like had to be expressed. And I was like, it was the first time my head clicked that like, oh, that's what they mean by expression. You really are literally expressing something. And so that's like you had, like you were like oozing, like literally, and you like had to pop. Yes. And like share. I had to pop. And then with all of that space that was left over, I had to feel the things that I'd never really felt and processed. And so when you talk about like, that sounds like maybe that's not a great idea to sit down and write down, wasn't that really painful? The answer is yes, it was. Because, and this makes me sad too, it was just me and my computer and I was doing it all alone. (laughs) But it wasn't calling and I couldn't stop because I felt like I'd asked for help so many times in so many ways and I still felt this way. And this felt like this is so painful, but I know that it's the most healing and helpful thing that I've ever done. So I was it was just like, I am going to keep, you know, scratching and crawling my way out of here until I finally did. And it was a five year process. And, um, you know, then I just now I can't shut up about it. I'm just like. You know, if you have these symptoms and these experiences, it might be this and and make sure you're seeing someone who knows about trauma and giving people this language. And because it took away all the shame, under finally understanding where I come from and why I did every single thing I did was because my body was genius in protecting me. And I'm so grateful for that now. And it doesn't need to be bracing for the next catastrophe anymore, right? Like that's not that's not happening. And so I can have a different experience of myself and my life and my relationships. And I have a son and I'm consciously to the degree that I can uh, making sure I do not pass down this legacy one more generation. Uh, it's big. It's I take it so seriously. One thing I just want to, and I could, I'm sure you know about it, so I'm going to ask because so I was doing one of our pre-interviews with uh, someone who's like a a huge trainer in EMDR and he was uh, he started talking to me about something about I I mean Casey knows that like I am always like I think I spent some of my therapy sessions like going through my divorce I'd always be like Casey and I asked her about this for you with your mom or I asked her about this or this because like it's like like, am I getting free therapy thank you yeah like like through me I'd go to my sessions like okay I'm here for my divorce but I listen what her mom did you know yeah Um, so obviously when I was pre-interviewing this guy I, I started talking about Casey a little bit because again I like love her so much and I'm like so invested in like 
How lucky am I, Casey, Ingrid? Casey <laughs> realizing like her potential and like, like that, like there's space to like grow and fly and like do amazing things. And, but so I was talking to him and I don't know, I don't know what I was saying about you, Casey. I mean, you know, I said something like, you know, sometimes like we're having a conversation and like her reaction, like does not oh, match yeah. the situation. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, whoa, what? Huh? No, I just said like that page had a, a, an error on it. You know, it's like, no big deal, whatever. And he was like, I would never make me. a mistake. I'm perfect. Are you kidding me? Like I did this. It's mine. I'm not stupid. Am I stupid? Do you think I'm stupid? Like, <sighs> yeah. And I'm like, dude, who cares? What, whatever. You know? And he told me this thing and I was like, oh, I actually feel like I understand her better. Or in general, he was like, you have to look at it like this. Okay. So like, if you know, well, he didn't say this part, but he had said like, well, what I associated it. He said like, if someone is like diabetic, you know, like they are literally missing, like, what is it? Insulin. I'm like, I, I might be saying it. I get it. I know it's like, that's what you're lacking. Sorry. Anyone that I'm saying it wrong. I'm like, I don't really know. No, I think it's like, okay. So say you have lupus like myself, like you're, you understand that like you're literally missing like a working immune system. Okay. That's, that's a better one. Cause I could talk about it. Cause I have it. Yeah. Um, he said, like, if you are raised in an environment that is traumatizing, like, not only that, like, literally developmentally, imagine, like, you're seeing, like, these things are, like, growing for a person. Like, your prefrontal cortex, like, part of your brain doesn't develop. So that is, like, that, and maybe correct me if I'm wrong, that is the part of your brain that allows us to like step back from a situation, look at it and be like, hmm, this isn't a big deal. I could do this or this or problem solve in situations mm-hmm. as opposed to like just, and so he was saying like, it's, you have to realize that it's stunted the development there. That's right. Well, not only that, but what we know, so the amygdala is the part of the brain that is sensing for threat. We all have that, right? But there's amazing brain scans and research of traumatized people where the amygdala grows up to 10 times the size. Yes, he said something like that. Crazy. So my amygdala, for instance, is constantly and so any tiny little fragment of a thing it's going to pick up on that where a non-traumatized brain is like oh yeah i made a mistake or no big deal it's like no no no. a mistake is like (laughs) you know there's going to be a severe consequence i have to like protect myself against this and um so yes trauma changes the brain And that's another reason why, on one hand, I had all this information and I feel like I've been a good therapist for people for a very long time. I could be very, you know, I could do this work with them, but I could not see it in myself until I could see it. And now I can't unsee it. But um, that's very, it's very real. It's very real. And just like hearing it like that, like so many people, like, you know, it's, with, I mean, we have a long way to go with like mental health or anything that is like, like awareness, but that, you know, if, if someone said like, you know, I have this again, immune system that doesn't work for this. It's like, I think people are harder on themselves because it's something that's like 
internal or unseen. Yes. Yes. To others. So it's like, it's like, but that's like, I need you to put the words because I've never actually heard someone like um, vocally Mm -hmm. state things the way you do. Mm. Um, But it was just like, whoa. (laughs) Well, because, okay, so then you take a a person who grows up in trauma and they're growing up next to people who aren't. And so you have all these examples around you of people that can like develop healthy friendships and they go on to date and they seem to have like a healthy, normal dating life and this normal trajectory of what happens in life. And when they have certain successes, they're able to take them in. It sort of changes their sense of self and who they are. And you're sitting here going, I'm trying to do all of the things that they're doing in the way that they're doing them with almost this mask of like, um, I got it. I got it, right? Like that that trauma response of like, no, 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 no. It's all good. I'm going to figure this out. This flight response. I'm running faster and harder with more consciousness and intention than these people that are sort of right next to me, just sort of like figuring things out. And because of that, this feature of complex trauma of toxic shame, it is brutal. Because now what I'm sitting there holding is I'm running faster and harder and with way more consciousness and effort. And I'm sitting on every therapist couch and I've been sober for decades and I'm being of service and I have a spiritual practice and I am trying and failing. And you are just figuring life out. You're just kind of showing up, right? It's like if I didn't have a good immune system and someone else next to me, they're just like they were sick and now they're not. And I'm just sitting here like sniveling, going like, what's how I feel? What is wrong with me? Why can't I do it? And then yes, the blame, because we can't name it and you can't see it. And no one else in my case was saying, Ingrid, that's because you experience trauma and trauma changes the brain. It changes your nervous system. And these are likely the trauma responses that you've been engaging in and you didn't even know it. And so you think that what you're doing is sort of showing up like all of your peers, but you're not, you're not. Mm-hmm. <sighs> I have so many notes. I can't stop writing. It sounds exhausting. Like it's, it's exhausting. Like- it's exhausting. I just posted on Instagram something last week, like a little thing that said, I don't just for today, I don't want another meme or a hot tip or a hack or a epiphany. I just don't want to have complex trauma <laughs> for today. Yeah. I don't want another book, another resource, another tool. Like I just don't want to be in constant reparenting management of myself because it is exhausting. And sometimes we just have to go, you know what? I'm not going to just, you know, you got to, as hard as it is, maybe not take it so seriously. And so like, because I can use my hypervigilance and apply it to my like trauma healing. Like, okay, I need another, I need another training. I need another, you know, and it's like, sometimes we just, I need a nap. And that's okay. Yes. Yeah. I know. Like even today, Leah and I were on the phone and just talking about some stuff I'm going through. And I, I literally just had like half of you. I'm like, I just don't want to talk about it anymore. <laughs> I was like, I want to like, can we switch to like, it's just like tired. It's like, okay. Yeah. I want to switch to like the podcast now and like, stop talking about my, you know, shitty life that I'm living right now. <laughs> yes. I get that. I, totally but I think that, that like, I just love, that's what I love about your Instagram and about you as a 
person and therapist and writer and everything is that you do use humor. And so like, there are times I'll watch some of your like videos and I like think it's like this serious thing. And then I realize like you're co totally like joking. And I like send it to like everyone I know. Cause I'm like, this lady is killing me. <laughs> like, <laughs> but it's, it's like, all, yeah. Yeah. I think that, I think what we're talking about is really serious. I don't ever minimize that. Um, I think it is really serious, but because it's also really triggering that sometimes I can't even like approach or digest or appreciate some things that could be really helpful because it's just too overwhelming, right? So trauma is basically a nervous system that is overwhelmed. And so to bring in 10 more like really heavy books to an already overwhelmed nervous system, man, it's gonna be really hard for me to get past a few pages. And so both by sharing my story, which feels a little more accessible because now I'm not talking about these heavy clinical things. It's just like you're watching a movie. You're watching someone else's story. Or, you know, I happen to have a really dark sense of humor and I can hear an audio on TikTok or on Instagram and go, I know how I can apply that to the fawning trauma response. And suddenly I'm, la I'm laughing. I'm laughing at this thing that has wreaked havoc in my life and other people can both laugh at it and see themselves in it. And then maybe read a caption underneath it that gives them more information, but they can only access it now because they were just like laughing and we're doing it together. So it's this shared experience where it's like, oh, she's a psychologist and she identifies. Okay, so maybe my shame is reduced a little bit. I honestly- You have street cred. You have street cred. Yes, and I think it's the- most helpful thing that I have. It's like the degrees and the clinical information is interesting, but it's really only me going, I'm going to run this stuff through my nervous system and then give it back to you in a relational way that I think makes it palatable. It makes it tolerable. It doesn't overwhelm people in the same way. And of course, other people are like, you know, they might not like my account or how could you, you know, be joking about any of this. And to that, I just say, because it's the thing that's been healing and helpful to me. That's my compass. Um, this is about my own healing journey and sharing it. I'm not like really trying to figure out like, what's the most healing and helpful thing for everybody else? Because I would just water it all down and it make me overthink. And then it's not helpful to me. And I'm back in a fawning response, right? Like what's helpful for you? What's helpful for you? I'm really going, what's helpful for me genuinely? And then I'm going to share that in as open hearted of a way as I possibly can. And for the people that it works, I'm just like, Ugh. It, it feels like community. It feels like the thing we always wanted. It feels like real relationship, even if I never see these people and I only know them on social media. It's profound. I do think that your book needs to be a movie, though. When you just said that, I could instantly see it like that's yeah. how amazingly well written the book is you don't even real i finished it in like three hours i don't know i sat in the bathtub i think because i was like if i cry i'm in the bathroom i'm already wet no one can see me <laughs> and i was like i can't stop and i could see it literally so as she was going through it like screenshot screenshot circled oh. highlight sending them all to me and i'm like like i don't know if i was like driving or like with kobe or something and but I mean, you're, 
I mean, your ability to share a story and mm -hmm. like also just like the way you talk about things is mm -hmm. such a, I mean, it's clear that you've done a lot of work mm -hmm. in the way that you're able to like vocalize these different um, like parts of yourself or parts that other people deal with is, I mean, unreal. And I, I can't imagine the amount of impact um, yeah, it's you're having amazing. on so many people. And I also think that you're, you know, we, we talk about how like we form these relationships with our parents, right? That we're supposed to be taken care of and cared for. And, and there's that, you know, it's just natural. It's nature. And when they don't show up, it's like, I was like, wait, so how did you tell your mom you were going to write this book? And do you still talk to your mom? And, and I was like, cause I'm kind of going through some of that. And when Whoa. you said, you're like, no, like I just had to realize that, you know, she's not going to show up. I'm going to show up for myself. I was like, okay, I can do this. <laughs> I mean, I think that's one thing that, um, well, two things are true. One is back to what I said at the beginning. I don't think I could have written it if my stepdad was still alive. I really don't think I could have. But for every other person that is in my story and related to the story, I realized how much I had been fawning, which in that context meant your healing and your comfort is more important, your comfort rather, is more important than my healing. It had kept me stuck. I don't want to ruffle any feathers. I don't want to make anybody mad. In fact, I don't, not only do I not want to make you mad and I can't handle conflict, it's my responsibility to take care of you. And when I saw really through this writing process, how I did that again, and I did it again, and I did it again. And as a result, this is where I am in my life. It's, it's just became like really binary, black and white clear. I cannot for one more day, put someone else's perceived comfort over saving my own life. And that I deserve that. And, and, and to the point where I go, I don't even care what is sacrificed in order to save my own life. And to be honest, what I also thought I would be sacrificing was my career as a psychologist. Because I thought, who's going to want to see that a person who works in mental health didn't know all of this and was so like, who's going to want to like take me seriously now that I'm like singing in my office, like doing all these silly things. And yet it was literally saving my life. Mm -hmm. And so I had, and I'm not kidding when I say it was a real terror and a real fear of the consequences that were going to come. And I had to just trust my body and this thing that was a calling that let me know you have got to show up for you no matter what. I saw that anything I put in front of my healing was a stumbling block. And I had to just be willing to go, then, then maybe I'm not supposed to be a therapist. Maybe I'm not supposed to have that person in my life. Maybe I need to figure out how to set healthier boundaries and be able to tolerate some conflict. And with each and every step, I've never regretted it. Never regretted a single thing that I have done in service of, I'm finally just going to really take care of me. Because I think that's the thing is I go, I'm willing to take care of me as long as no one else is like impacted in any way. It's like, no, no, no. 
guess what we're talking about? Relational trauma. It has to be, the healing has to also be relational. I can't just do it in my own little private little boat over here and go, don't worry about me. I'm not going to send any waves your way. I have to be willing to go, I matter. I'm allowed to make some waves and I'm not doing it maliciously. I trust where my heart is. I, I tr I'm never going to do anything just because it's going to hurt someone else. But if saving my own life is going to make someone uncomfortable, I'm willing for them to be uncomfortable. How much discomfort have I been holding for the whole family system for 40 yes. years? Yes. I love you. <laughs> uh, but it was a hard shift, a major hard shift that I never, ever, ever saw coming. I never, ever wanted to like uh, make the tiniest little bit of waves. And it's been a huge part of what has been the most helpful. When I read the fawning, I like have so many notes. I'm like, I do it with my family. I do it with Matt's family. Anyone that like I'm trying to like, I'm always the person who like makes everyone happy. Or like if I see like, oh, that was a comment Matt made that made his aunt angry. So now let me like be the one who like makes a joke out of it or like, you know, just everything. It's always me. And I tell you that too. I'm like, why is everyone calling me? Like, I'm like, can't they like, figure out their own shit like it's always on Casey and I'm like and then at the same time she's like why didn't they ask me for help with that like, I, I know because I have that like where I want to be wanted and I want to be like she's like you know no one could survive without me right <laughs> that's and our like, value because you know my value and I wrote that in the fawning article my worth and value was forged as a fawner as a caretaker as a people pleaser so I literally don't know that my value is in my people pleasing. And so it is that double-edged sword. It's like I've hung a shingle saying, I will take care of you. I will privilege you. I will prioritize you. And then I get pissed off when people take advantage of it. And <laughs> it's I literally off when they don't. This yeah. is literally our conversations. And then I like will send, I don't know, my algorithm obviously knew we were doing this podcast today on Pinterest oh. yesterday. I was like trying to like, like look at bathrooms. I'm trying to like renovate my one bathroom in my house. And I was like, this algorithm is, so then I like, I'm like, oh, these are so spot on. But like what you're saying, like the one thing I think I said to Casey, it's like emotional abandonment in childhood makes us desperate to be chosen in adulthood. So like if if someone's not calling, you're, and you're saying it today, if someone's not calling on you for that help, like how rude that you didn't call on me and I could take care of everything. Um, but you do call on me and then I'm annoyed that like, it's always me that I have, like, I have to do everything. And why can't anyone else just figure it out? Like, why can't someone take care of me? You've said before. Yes. I don't and let people though. I don't let people. No, of course it's too terrifying. But what we can start to do in even small manageable ways is to take care of ourselves with a healthy boundary. And honestly, that healthy boundary, it doesn't have to be like, I'm cutting this toxic person out of my life. No, it can be like if someone says, hey, what do you want for dinner? I actually think about what I want for dinner. Wow. Not what I think you want for dinner. Not what I, but really like those manageable choices. I can start to make them to have a voice. Oh, what's your opinion? Oh, gosh. I'm really going to say what my actual, my actual opinion is here. And it's like, 
it, and then it starts to build because what happens is the nervous system goes, that felt good. I get to take up space. I matter. And the sky didn't fall. So it's more information of like, oh, I took up more space in the world and uh, there's not, you know, people aren't coming after me. And so it's like this slow ability to build safety in this new way. And when it feels so good, like that's what happened. It felt so good to be a truth teller and to be able to laugh at it. That even though part of me was terrified, it's like, I'm going to do it again. I'm going to say something real and I'm going to say something real even about my family and it's going to be public. But every time I did it, it was like I was inflating myself to where I was a whole real person in the world. I started walking differently down the street. <laughs> I am here. I am here. And I think I was just a puppet and a shadow of someone else for so long that to feel into my own body, it's like the body goes, yes, like we want more of this. But starting small is important because we're talking about safety and we don't want to overwhelm again. We want to go, where can I have more of a voice? Where can I say my opinion, set a boundary, take really genuinely take care of myself? If someone says, are you available to do it? Just because I can doesn't mean I'm going to say yes. Oh, I'm so sorry you're dealing with that. Ugh, I'm so sorry. I'm not available right now. And being available doesn't mean I can have time in the day. It, it might be physically possible. It might be I have a chronically overwhelmed nervous system. <laughs> I'm prioritizing my own rest and health and wellness. That is a good enough reason to say I am unavailable. Really hard to do. And it's exhausting. <sighs> yes. Yes. I think that for all clinicians out there, I know we have a lot of listeners who are clinicians and behavior analysts. Um, and probably psychologists and being able to like learn about this and understand it with the people that you work with. Like Liat was saying today, she goes, I feel like everyone has like a story of their childhood or something. Like even people that you think have these perfect lives, like you don't know what really happened. And being aware of all these different, like kind of, oh, well, maybe she's reacting this way because you know, there's some form of trauma that is occurring in her body or it just, I, I hate to use the word empathetic, but just more aware. And I think it's really helpful. Um, so everyone needs to go get the book. Believing me, I'm telling you, believe me, you need to get it. Believe me, you need believing me. And we'll have everything in all the show notes of where you can find it and find her website and all her amazing articles. They're so like easy to read. And like I said, you know, there's humor, there's, you know, research. And it's just like, oh, like just even reading the fawning one. I'm like, all right. So Casey, now I'm going to, I'm going to be able to recognize that fawning response because yeah. I yeah. use words like, oh, I overcompensate or I, you know, this, but like, it's actually That's a trauma true. response of why I engage in those behaviors that I always like looking at the function again. Yes. Looking at the function. I'm like, and that would just be able to tact or label these things really helps you, you know, feel like you're not crazy. <laughs> That's right. That's yeah. right. It helps me. I'm so grateful. Thank you for reading the book and sharing your own um, reflections with me. That just, it's this incredible feedback loop 
you know, where you share what was meaningful to you. And it almost gives me more of a nuanced understanding of the thing I said, but I didn't know it landed in that way. And it's just this powerful, powerful exchange. And I'm so grateful that you feel seen. And in seeing you, I feel seen too. I'm so grateful. Oh, for I just feel so blessed. It's like one of those times you reach out to someone like we did on Instagram. And I was like, oh, she's probably going to say no. And she <laughs> said, yeah, I'd love to. I'm like, oh my God. Okay. So take the chance. <laughs> Yes. And hopefully it lands. So Ingrid, you have been amazing. Thank you so much for sharing your story and coming and taking time today. It means so much to us. Just to end it off with a a nice find from Pinterest. What you're talking about the entire time is the amount of work you've put on. So hopefully like this podcast also like inspires someone to like realize it's possible to put in this work and not have to feel stuck in a place always. Like just to you know, when you hear, all you want to do is hear someone else who has been through something to have that. Like, I remember my dad's like, you know, cancer treatment is like, how, do we know anyone who's had this type of thing that I just want to find one success story, you know? Uh, so really just like looking, and I think you're that for so many people, obviously you say it's like still consistent work that you need to do. But one of the things I saw was like honoring the space between the no longer and the not yet. So it's like, like that in between, like all of us are always like so focused on like getting to like the other side of a mission, right? Like, like, okay, I'm on the other side now, like I'm done with that. But like kind of allowing yourself to realize like that space in between is not comfortable from like one mountain to the other, but like just allowing yourself to be there. And I, I mean, I know personally, I'm someone who's like, I don't want to be feeling upset anymore. Why am I feeling upset? Blah, whatever it is, you know? So yes. I think that was one thing. Thank yes. you, Pinterest. Actually, I should give credit to Nancy Levin. Thanks, girl. Love ya. Um, and then this one, which I thought was really cool too, and it was, remember that the minute you take your first step into the life of your dreams, you know, like really dealing with these things that are uncomfortable, the first to greet you there will be fear. Nod and keep walking. And I thought, and that is by Brianna Weist, another very sweet girl, I assume. And <laughs> I will add trauma recovery the thing to greet you is not just fear, but shame. Mm -hmm. Okay, so that you need to write something similar to that with the shame yes, included. Yes, <laughs> because we are often holding the shame for the whole system, and we believe that it belongs to us. And it's really painful and overwhelming to face how much we've been holding and how painful it is. And it can feel very confusing. Like, no, 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 this is me. This there's, There is something really wrong with me. And in fact, I think that's a sign that you're moving in the right direction because you're finally feeling processing and being able to say, this does not belong to me. I'm going to hand it back where it belongs. Yes. Yeah. I love it. And I, I love everything that you've spoken about today. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, beauties. Thank you for all you do and having me here today. I'm so grateful. All right. It's amazing. We love it. Thank you, Ingrid. All right, guys. Thanks for tuning in. We will, in the show notes, put everywhere that you could find Dr. Ingrid. And with that, you know where to find us. You can find us on our website, BehaviorBitches.com, our Instagram, BehaviorBitchesPodcast, our Facebook, BehaviorBitchesPodcast. And as always, love ya. Mean it. Hey guys, it's Liat and Casey. We just want to take a second to let you know that if you're thinking of being a millennial like us 
and starting your own podcast, there is a way. You can do your show without having to become an audio editing and production wizard, because guess what? We don't know shit with that. But we have Alan at Pretty Easy Podcast who help us get started. He records our shows. He posts them. He adds awesome, awesome music and cool shit when we don't even know what he's doing. He sends us teaser episodes. He does it all. We just sit here and friggin' talk. We shoot the shit and you can record from home, your office, the park, a bathroom stall at work. It doesn't matter. He provides the complete podcast studio. All you need is a microphone and you're good. Alan caters to your schedule and gives you a producer for your show at your beck and call. He has been super flexible with our schedule. Whenever we need him, we go to Google Calendar. We just book him and he does all the hard work. It's like so incredibly easy. That's why it's probably called Pretty Easy Podcast. So be heard and have some fun podcasting like us. Go to prettyeasypodcast.com today. 